This week on The Big Show is Halloween weekend, and we'll discuss some of our scariest movie moments. Plus, we'll celebrate the colorful life and rich comic legacy of John Witherspoon. In addition, we'll have movie news and reviews of the latest films, including Motherless Brooklyn, Terminator, Dark Fate, and Harriet, all on the latest episode of Keeping It Real with Film Gordon. Let's go. Tim Gordon. Wow, nice show, and it's good to be back. I've been gone for two weeks, man. Film festivals, junkets out, out west. It's been a long couple of weeks, man, but here we are now. Not only is it Halloween weekend, but it's also early November. We're literally less than a month and a half away from Golden Globe nominations, as the, uh, the picture I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks will develop and become clear as we will see the major nominees in the acting, technical, and directing categories. So really looking forward to that. Coming up a little later on in the show, as you heard in our tease, uh, for Halloween weekend, we're going to talk about some of my scary movie moments. Charles Kirkland will join me for that as well. John Witherspoon, uh, a guy whose work I've been watching now for 30 years, uh, passed away earlier this week. And I want to uh, do a nice tribute for him. And we will look at and discuss some of his wonderful moments uh, that really made me laugh. And I was going through my uh, IG feed and Twitter and Facebook earlier this week and reading a lot of uh, what people were posting. God was funny, man. I mean, so we will we will really dive into that a little later on in the show. And Wilson Morales from BlackFilm.com will join us momentarily to let us know what's going on in entertainment. But having said that, uh, we'll get to Wilson momentarily. But let me just start with uh, we both were at the same movie theater this morning, Charles Kirkland and I, watching two separate contenders this morning. My movie started an hour after his and let out a half an hour before. He's just getting here. So when I talk to you guys on air about award season and what it means, it's these sorts of efforts that you guys don't see behind the scenes. Uh, where you have critics all over the country just scrambling, just watching as much as they can watch, trying to take it all in so that they can be a part of these votes. So uh, neither of the movies that were seen today can be reviewed today, but trust me, we will talk about them in their appropriate time. And speaking of appropriate time, this is a good time to pivot up to New York for an appropriate conversation with the head of BlackFilm.com, its editor-in-chief, and one of the, the best entertainment journalists that I know, Wilson Morales. Welcome back to the show, brother. Hi, it's good to be on. Hey, man, what's going on with you, man? Were you running from a movie or anything this morning, or is it just us? Uh, no, probably just you guys. You know, <laughs> if you're not in New York or in L.A., you know, everybody else behind them. Behind the eight ball. <laughs> oh man! So you know? what's going on, brother? Uh, you know, it's just you know the start of November. It's a little stuff coming on. If it's not in theaters, it's on TV. You know, you've got the Irishman now in theaters. You've got Harriet now in theaters. You've got Terminator: Dark Fate in theaters. You've got Muzzless Brooklyn now in theaters. 
You know, these are some of these movies played in uh, festivals. You know, on TV, you've got the Apple series, including um, The Morning Show and uh, C, which stars Alfred Woodard. Um, I think there's, tonight there's something on uh, Stars, a new series called In the Long Run, which is based on the life of Idris Elba uh, from his childhood. You know, so there's a number of things that just came up. Um, recently, they just aired a trailer and poster to a new film opening up on Valentine's Day next year called The Photograph, which is directed by Stella Meghee and stars Issa Rae in her first leading role, along with Keith Stanfield, Rob Morgan, and a number of other actors. Well, Wilson, so this begs the question, I think you're making my point. When we talk about all this content that's available and with the launch of Apple TV today with these four series that are on, if we are having a hard time trying to pull all this stuff together, man, how is it that the average person who (laughs) has to make choices between do I have Netflix, do I have HBO, do I have Stars or Cinemax or OWN, how do you think people are going to, how do you think in this new world of everybody introducing their own streaming services that shows are still able to be heard, that people, that their content is able to get out there? It's plus the money is going to be in the marketing. You know, there's a slew of, there's too much influx in the market in terms of product. You know, now, you know, you can say, okay, maybe you can get a job because there's so many, you know, shows now airing between. HBO Max and Apple Plus and Disney Plus, you know, and, uh, you know, you still have the regular TV networks, and then you still have films out in theaters, so it's a matter of, like, fighting for that audience, so if you're a talent, whether you're a director, actor, or anybody else, you're probably going to need a publicist to make sure that people know that your product is out there so that they can see it. But for the average consumer, it's a question or not, whether or not they have the money, you know, it's one thing when you're ordering Netflix, but it's sort of like, when do you have time to watch Netflix and stuff on Apple Plus and HBO? And then you start adding them up. It's going to be over $100 if you start, if you want everything. Yeah, man, the struggle the struggle is truly real, man. And I mean, I, I, I can't speak to you. I know you and I talk about this. I, I'm sitting at home, man, trying to consume as much content as possible because we've got to watch stuff in order to make decisions, not just about things that we cover, but things that we need to vote on in both a film and television space, it's tough, man. It's probably the toughest it's ever been, I would say. It's only going to get worse. And you start wondering, like, why is it different? You start asking, why is there a need to pay for these services? You know, at the end of the day, you know, know, why couldn't it just be on TV? You know, you have to pay for these streaming services, maybe because that's where everybody else is going when you see that the ratings are no are now down, and the reason they're down is because there's too much influx, you know, there's a variety of things to watch on TV, so, you know, you can no longer, with the exception of maybe the Super Bowl, you can no longer capture that audience of yesteryear, whether it be the Oscars, the Grammys, or anything else, you know, there's always kind of programming uh, that if you're not particularly a fan of any of those award shows. Now, paying for it, Wilson, to me, is only half the, the, the battle. The other half is finding the time to watch all the stuff you're paying for. So oh, yeah. if you got yeah, CBS true. All Access and you got all these other kind of plus services that have been created, you can only do so much, man, in the 24-hour window, and then you kind of multiply that, that most people are working long jobs, they come home, they're looking for some relaxation late at night, and it's just too much, man. I, I think I think that's, you know, we've gone from, 
an age where I'm a little older than you, where there were three channels, three major networks in ABC, NBC, and CBS, to now having five, six, seven hundred different options that people can watch, man. It's just nutty. It's nutty. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're going to have to hope for like a rainy day, a snowstorm, where you just can't go outside and you'll say, okay, I'm going to be inside for two days. What can I watch? You know, and then at the same time, you say to yourself, you know what? Sometimes you don't want those binge watching shows because as much as you want to do it, you kind of want to pace some of these things out, which is why shows like Power and A Game of Thrones stood out because people at least anticipated and they had at least a week to, like, look forward to the next episode as opposed to, like, oh, I can't do back-to-back-to-back-to-back episodes, you know, whereas I can do one episode now and look forward to seeing it next week. Right. So, Wilson, let me take a pivot right now, man. You know, you at BlackFilm.com, and I know you and several of our colleagues uh, are really huge in this space. The, the death of John Witherspoon, man. You know, I woke up several days ago early this week, man, and saw that and was like, wow. And then we go through his filmography, and, and really I think we took for granted just how funny this guy was in so many different things, which I'm going to speak a little bit about more in detail, but I wanted to get uh, or throw it to you or get your, get your kind of uh, observation. What did you think about the legacy of John Witherspoon? Well, you know, John was one of those guys that were like, he was never the leading guy, but he knew how to walk into any place he, he you know, he entered and give in his all comedically, you know, from the movies he did, from the Friday series to the television shows like the Wayne Brothers and the Tracy Morgan show. Like, he was just a burst of laughs that you just wanted him on your team. He's like that player that, like, you know what? Uh, he, he's not old enough to walk away, but he's still good enough to contribute. And whether it be the father who made you laugh or just coming in there and doing his thing, you look at his legacy and you look at his IMDb, IMDb page and stuff like that, his, uh, his uh, film credits and TV credits, it's a mile long. And when you see the outpouring of comments from those who he worked with, it just shows that, like, hey, listen, um, he may have not gotten the write-ups, the articles about him, uh, because he was, you know, I guess we people always want those leading guys, but he was always there in the mix. And you know, luckily enough that when he passed away, and you hate to see it when it, when he a person passes away, that he's getting the love now. Yeah, and it's very interesting. I went through. I was reading the uh, IG the other day, and as you said, all these different actors, young actors, older actors, you know, people love John Witherspoon. And I think Jamie Foxx's page had probably the tribute that I probably retweeted or copied where he found like maybe seven or eight different clips of different movies to show his range. Guy was just funny, man. I mean, you know, just funny. And I can't I can't describe what funny is because I always talk about humor being subjective. His humor just hit me, whether it's boomerang uh, the Boondocks. I mean, whatever he did, the Wayans Brothers show, whatever, whatever he touched, he put his breath to in a, in, a, in a script and had lines. Just made you laugh, man. And and there's not a lot of people you can say that about Wilson. No, you know, you know, like you know, and granted, you know, he he was 77, um, but apparently from what I've read, I haven't read all of the exact details. It was still a surprise. You know, he was still working up until his age, up until his age. 
you know, so nevertheless, you know, you can't take away what he brought to this world and what he contributed to the projects he worked on. All right, man. I think we got a couple of minutes left, man. I just want to just kind of pull the curtain back a little bit to tell people that I got a chance to spend some time with Wilson a week ago. Uh, it was fun, man. We don't see each other enough, man. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good to be out in L.A., you know, all at once, you know, and see other colleagues as well. And yeah. enough folks of color, you know, sharing the same space and, you know, just hobnobbing like the grand poobah, like, oh, what's going on? And, you know. <laughs> you know yeah, like, Charles, you Charles know. is sitting here, man. He is not looking happy at all, man. Charles wants to. He he missed the he missed the, the the class picture man last week so I thought that was fun. You know, it's like it, you know, it's fun. You know, it's not that often people can get together, but you know, there's always social media and emails and texts and stuff like. But face to face, I guess you know these days you can't beat that. Yeah, Charles, it's always social media for you, man. All right, Wilson, tell people. I wish you could see his face, Wilson. Uh, tell people, Wilson, where they can follow your content, man. And I know you're going to be out in the streets this weekend, man. Uh, you can find me over at blackfilm.com, which is the same word you use for Twitter, Facebook, as well as Instagram. And you notice he didn't deny the streets, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Wilson, until next week, brother. Uh, we will All be right. in touch, man. You take care, All man. Right. We'll talk later. Take care. All right. And, of course, that is my friend, my colleague, my man, Wilson Morales from BlackFilm.com, who joins us at the top of every show to let us know what's going on in entertainment. We're going to take a break right now. And the most selfish man in radio who actually gave a pair of socks away. I was shocked last week when I saw this picture in Los Angeles. Like, he's actually, he was not selfish for a moment. Charles Kirkland will join us on the other side. It's going to be time to talk about the life and legacy of John Witherspoon. You guys keep it where you got it here at 96.3 HD4. And that's dcradio.gov if you're at home. The big show. It'll be right back. Welcome back to Keeping It Real with Film Gordon. That was a scene from a film that still makes me laugh a lot. 1992's Boomerang and John Witherspoon showing off his great fashion acumen. You got to coordinate. To Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Gerard, you know your daddy got on. I know. (laughs) John Witherspoon. Uh, we talked in the last break, or to begin our show, I should say, uh, passed away earlier this week at the age of 77. This veteran made his uh, cinematic debut on film in 1980, but he made his television debut in 1977 and for 42 straight years 
whatever script they gave him in all these movies, he took these characters and made them his own. I'm joined by Charles Kirkland. Charles, uh, what was your initial reaction when you got the news about the passing of John Witherspoon? Well, I had been out driving all day and for some, well, I worked in the morning, drove, drove late in the evening. So when I came home, it was like almost midnight. And I'm scrolling through my social media, and I and I just dropped. I was like, "Oh no!" And obviously, my son he said, "Oh, you must have just heard, huh?" I'm like, "I can't believe John Witherspoon. He's so young. I thought he was so young. He's gone, but he was 77. 77 years old, man. I mean, and and what a career this guy had, man. I mean, you know, uh, Wilson was on our last in our last segment and talked a little bit about this." And the thing about John that I think is really germane to us as an African-American community in cinema is that he, his humor, I think, really spoke to, I guess I should say, the souls of black folk. Uh, you look at a lot of these roles, man, and all these roles, I think, for the most part, I'm, if I haven't seen them all, I've seen nearly 90% of them. Uh, he played Mr. Jones in Winky at Winky Dicky Dog. <laughs> Winky Dicky Winky Dog. Dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bobby, say it with me. Winky, Winky Dicky, Dicky Dog. Dog. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get you, sucker. Shot <laughs> spoon in that. Uh, Mr. Strickland in House Party. Turn that music down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten all about I'm that. I'm telling you, man. I've seen, I've seen a lot of his work, man. Uh, Wild Rudy and the Five Heartbeats. Wow. I do remember him in that as well. Uh, Mr. Boomerang is kind of like his coming out moment, man. Like, he was great in Hollywood Shuffle. He was electric he in, Boomerang, man. in Boomerang. In Boomerang. Just great. Um, you look at him in Meteor Man. I remember that. That was funny. And in Friday, my God, mm. man, he was absolutely. And, and Friday to me had lines that were funny, but it was more of that father son yeah. wisdom that he gave out, you know, um, in the film. Go ahead, man. He, he, he always played a great dad. I don't know what he's, he was a dad all his life. He was I think. pops. He was, he was pops. pops. He was pops. So after I found out he passed, I went upstairs and told my wife. I said, John Witherspoon did. She said, who? I said, John Witherspoon. And she's like, I don't know who that. I said, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> <laughs> she said, oh, Did you say bang, bang, bang? I'm sorry, man. You caught me off guard with that one. That was good. Uh, I'm going to go down to Soul Plane, a movie that absolutely set the race back about 25 years. Say, we, do we have to talk but, about But, watch this, but John <laughs> Witherspoon was funny in this movie as the blind first-class passenger who said every inappropriate thing he say. <laughs> funny, man. Um, let me look through, because I want to get to his television work in a minute, man. So, uh, yeah, so I, that, those to me are his highlights. And then here's the other thing that I'll share. I remember John Witherspoon being one of the writers and actors on the Richard Pryor show. That was actually his first television yeah. credit in 1977. Um, not as funny then because he was overshadowed by, of course, Robin Williams and Marsha Warfield and, you know, Paul Mooney. All these guys were on staff 
along with um, Tim Reed, who later on would do Frank's oh, yeah, Place. Yeah. I mean, so they had an all-star team, man, with the Richard Pryor show. Uh, so that was my first role of seeing him in two of the four episodes. Uh, of course, he did a lot of what I call standardized television, you know, what's happening, good times, all that stuff. Uh, but later on, man, I think he, he found Second Life first uh, in one episode of Martin, which brought him kind of to more contemporary folk in 1993, and then The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and then he found his role as Pops, man, on the Wayans on the Brothers. Wayans. And he, he was on that show, man, for five years, man. Um, so here's a brother, man, whose legacy, man. I, I just want to talk about him for a second. Um, I never met him. Never interviewed him. Um, and it reminds me a lot of almost how you've heard me talk about Michael Jackson on the show, that, you know, there's certain things that you see all your life and you just kind of take them for granted that they'll always be there. And the humor of John Witherspoon just popped up in so many different things. We talk about the boondocks, uh, you know, where he played, I guess, Pops in that show, opposite Regina King, who voiced two roles, um, and Aaron McGruder's show. Man, that that was some cutting-edge stuff that he was doing on that show, man. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> and the proud family as well. I mean, family. you know. So uh, Wilson mentioned the the Tracy Morgan show he was on there for eighteen episodes, I think. Right, mm. and I think the last really funny thing I saw him on, believe it or not, was Black Jesus. Uh, there's a great <laughs> scene between now the two greats, the late Charlie Murphy and the late uh, John Witherspoon, where you know he's calling them all kind because he's playing like a homeless bum, and he's like. Yeah, I'm a bum, but I got a new job. I'm a linesman. <laughs> said, what the heck is a linesman? He said, people pay me to stand in line for them. <laughs> and then in turn, you know, sometimes I get $500. I even got me an iPod. <laughs> He's like, word? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, last week he was a bum digging the garbage. Yeah, despite that. <laughs> <laughs> Witherspoon is funny, man. So my legacy, man, of thinking about this particular actor is that Every time I saw him, no matter what the project was, he either gave me something to think about or he made me laugh. And you know what, Charles? It's not a bad thing at all, brother, to be remembered for. Not at all. Not you at know, all. You know, his sons, you know, you go through his IG account, his sons talk glowingly and lovingly about their father, who was not, not just their father, but their friend, uh, somebody they could talk to, somebody they can come to, somebody they related to. You know, when we talk about I, legacy, he, uh, brother, I think... They would say they would say that's that's job well done. Bro. Yeah. You you not only were Amen. a cinematic dad, you were a real dad, and you were a friend. And, you know you I mean from coming out of Detroit, he was a guy who started off with aspirations to do one thing, sing and dance, and then found his niche doing something else. I mean everybody out of Detroit wanted to be Motown, so I mean <laughs> that's hey, what man. he had. Hey man, so in addition to that, so how much time we got left, man? I want I want to know because you know they were talking about they're in pre-production for last Friday right how's that how's that gonna work now with him gone I think I think honestly what Ice Cube and and F Gary Gray and the the producers that that will do will probably do some sort of wonderful kind of tribute I could actually see them doing that because he was so well loved that they're not just gonna let it slide like you know he's not there or just put a picture up I could see them actually doing something uh, around that, or at least that's my hope. It, it would uh, be good. For his it would be good. So he's pretty good. So 
I want to segue into another uh, giant that was lost early in the week. And I'm not sure if a lot of people even paid attention to this one, but this one made sense to me because of, of, of his legacy as well was uh, film producer Robert Evans. I don't know if you saw that earlier this I, week. I did. Robert I did. Evans, man, is a, a, a producer, but he's probably best known. He started off as an actor uh, in the late, you know, I would say mid to late 50s. Um, and kind of transitions to becoming a film producer. And as a film producer, he took over a struggling Paramount Pictures in the <laughs> mid-1960s. It was in the 1960s. The game had changed, bro. Paramount was struggling. And he brought three movies to Paramount. Gee. Just, I mean, he brought a lot more movies, but he started off with these three, and I'm just going to throw out some titles and see Kind of with you, with you. He brought Chinatown, the Jack right. Nicholson movie, to Paramount. He brought this little movie that was a huge hit called Love Story, with his then wife Ally McGraw. And he then was married to Allie, he was married to Ally McGraw. Oh, he lost Ally McGraw to a, another actor who <laughs> he produced in a film called Bullet by the name of Steve, Steve McQueen. McQueen. Yeah. And then he also did this other little Just film. Just a little film. From 1972 called The, the Godfather. Godfather. Yeah, Robert Evans produced yeah, The Godfather. Yeah. So there's a, there's a documentary that came out in the early 2000s called The Kid Stays in the Picture. If you've never yeah, seen this, yeah. you need to watch that because it's required viewing. And behind the scenes, he tells a story of how old... This was like the last of old studio Hollywood and how it worked, where a studio would option a book bring in an in-house producer who would work with the writer on the screenplay and then they would cast it so everything was done in-house. So this was the last vestiges of that. And The Godfather, every movie that was made about the Italian mob before this film always had Jewish gangsters in it. And never they would never put Italian actors mm-hmm. in in gangster films because there was this stipulation that these movies didn't work or they couldn't find enough of them i.e. the black argument that we would have years later. (laughs) And in this story, he finds this little-known director named Francis Ford Coppola who had directed a movie called Finnegan's Rainbow. Nobody knew who the heck he was, but he he was Italian. He comes to the table. He gives him the job over the over the objections of his of his seniors. And the first thing Coppola does is look at the screenplay and decides it needs to be rewritten. And it needs to be a family saga, right? He rewrites it. Him and Evans go back and forth every day. Evans wants to fire him. He doesn't fire him. (laughs) Then he starts to cast the movie, and he brings in a lot of these unknown Italian actors, people like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and his sister, Talia Shire, and all these other Italian actors, right? And... At this time, Marlon Brando, 20 years removed after winning the Oscar, is kind of, you know, sort of, nobody wants to deal with him. He, he disguises Brando, puts cotton balls in his chin, <laughs> puts shoe polish in his hair, and disguises his voice, and slides Brando through. And hence you have probably, arguably, the greatest American movie ever made, produced by this man who left us earlier this week, Robert Evans, producer extraordinaire, his career kind of went left, you know, after he was, you know, hit for buying some drugs in the early 80s and kind of never never rebounded. But again, we talk about legacy. This dude is a force. He's a giant in the game. 
Robert Evans dead at 87. Um, so we got about a minute to go. Uh, it's Halloween weekend right now. And uh, we're going to come back on the other side. And I want to talk about some scary moments. Soul Plane does not count. It, that was definitely scary, though. Nor does any Tyler Perry movie count. Mm. Okay. Okay. I'm taking away your, your two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish you could see John's face. I'm taking away your two go-to movies. Yeah. <laughs> kind of stole my right. thunder there. All right. <laughs> We're going to come back to scare you. Uh, you guys keep it what you got. If you're listening to, keep it real. It's real. I don't know real what, but it's real. <laughs> With no more. This week at the movies, Harriet. We're going to talk Harriet. You want to stick around for that one. But right now, uh, Charles Kirkland rejoins me in studio, and it is Halloween weekend, brother. And every year on this weekend, Charles, we try to think of a different slant of how we want to hit the horror in cinema, man. Yeah. So this year, instead of looking at individual movies... I want to look at some scary movie moments, man. And I, and there's a couple since you and I talked over break that I think I want to bring to the table because now they're starting to flood back. And I want to, I want to, <laughs> no, I want to, I want to talk about some of the key ones in the uh, in the black horror space, man. So uh, you know, as a good host, man, I'm gonna let you start off, man. What would you, what would you deem to be one of your five top scary movie moments in cinema? Wow, you're setting me up really well. I mean, for I can this, go but, first um, if you want me to, so we can set the pace. Okay, well, I'm gonna say for me. Oh, for you, go ahead, man. Um, I, there's this movie called The Descent, Ooh. and there's and I don't yeah, care yeah, lay about it all, lay it out for I don't people, care man. About all ahead. the monsters. So this is this, the woman goes, they go into a cave, right? Right. You know, and this is this is those kind of people stuff. They're going. Exploring a cave they've never been in before. All right, stop. We're around a campfire right now. Me, Shane, and you, we all got we all got uh, marshmallows, and the audience at home has as well. So you're telling us a scary story. Go ahead, man. So so they say, oh, let's go to this cave we've never been in before. Uh-huh. We're going to check it out because it's unexplored, and we can, we can really, you know, be the virgins in this place, and we can set our, you know, you know, make it ours. Mm-hmm. So they get in now. At some point in time, they later on in the movie, they get run into monsters and stuff in there. But the one part that was the scariest part to me, as they were crawling through this cave, they crawling through on their bellies because it's a tight space, and the cave starts to collapse. And it's closing in on them as they're crawling, and they're gasping for breath, and and the scene is tight on their faces, and you see the rubble and everything, and I'm experiencing claustrophobia. I'm having a panic attack watching these girls, their girls, Hmm. crawl through this cave. They're about to be crushed 
in this cave. And that, to me, that was more scary than when they run into these terrible monsters after they get through the other side of that cave. But that one scene, when they're going through, I was gasping for breath. All right, so did you feel scared by that? No. Shane got nothing. Yeah, I Shane, got nothing either. No. All right. Okay. I'm going to take a shot. Because, again, I think I, I, I must have laid out the requirement after this. You so did. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do okay. this again. All right. All right. I got one for you. 1991. I'm a 20. I'm in my mid to late 20s, right? I'm out there. I'm living in D.C. I'm doing D.C. things. If you live in D.C., you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's this little movie that comes out called Death by Temptation. Death by <laughs> Temptation is a story of a succubus really attract a woman who goes to bars picks up men brings them home and in the course of them doing what they do turns into a demon and kills them sucks the blood out of them and turns them into zombies now I can go on and explain the story about how James Bond III is a, is a preacher who has come from the south and has come to New York to visit his friend and how this demon is targeting him and wanting to take his soul from a spiritual standpoint that is scary. But the fact of a man who was out there doing what I was doing during that time period and to see a movie and a story like that, like, that could be me. That scared me. That scared me. Shane. Now Shane is laughing. Shane but is you laughing. get you get the humor, the the horror of that because I didn't take that as what I saw on screen that was scary because that was scary too. But I I internalized <laughs> it like whoa. Whoa. So that's one right there. I got there. you. I got so, you. So okay. So, so, so your turn. So so Shane, who won turn. the first who won the first scare off? I sold no, mine though. Won. I sold mine. Yeah, so I got one point. Go ahead. All right, so there's there's this little movie called Scream 2. The opening scene, um, we're we're in a movie theater. We're watching this movie called Stab that they've made about (laughs) the first movie of Scream where, you know, everybody has these masks and they're killing people. So it's kind of like a Rocky Horror thing. You're here, they're watching this movie and everybody in the audience has these masks on and, and Jada Pinkett Smith is in the, in the crowd. She's just Jada Pinkett at that time. And she's watching the movie and all of a sudden the killer is really there in the theater and he stabs her in the back. But nobody understands that this is real. They think it's just, you know, part of the the ongoing thing. So she runs up to the stage trying to get away from the from the killer. And the killer pursues her up on the stage and continues to stab her and stab her in front of all these people watching. And they just think it's part of the fun. But he kills her in that theater. Right there. Mm. Wow, that was scary. All right, Charles. I mean, okay, that was good. All right, I see what you did there, Charles. All right. Okay. 1995? This is a little movie called... Uh, oh, God. What the neck? The, what? Man. Can't uh, win if you can't name it. That's cool. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Not. I want to say it's not Tales from the Crypt. It's uh, uh, the guy that made uh, Fear of a Black Hat. Uh Tales from the Hood. Tales from the Hood. Rusty Cundiff. Okay. This is, it's three stories. The one story I want to concentrate on was the story with David Allen Greer, 25 years before he would play a bad guy on Queen Sugar, 
plays an abusive father to Paula J. Parker. And in the bedroom is a little kid who's cowering in fear. As every night, David Allen Greer comes home and violently beats his mother up. And he, as an artist, a little artist, and he takes and he draws this figure called, you know, I guess he called it the Boogeyman. And, of course, David Allen Greer was, was, uh, was, was uh, abusing him as well. And he comes in and he's beating his boy up and the boy is going to school with black and blue marks. And Rusty Cundiff is his teacher hmm. and comes home to visit to find out what's going on in his house, only to be assaulted by David Allen Greer as well. Until the little boy draws a picture of this boogeyman and then takes it and grabs the piece of paper to ball it up. And when he balls it up, it balls up David Allen Greer. Oh, my God. <laughs> that episode of uh, Tales from the... What was it called? Tales from the Hood. Tales from the Hood. Tales from the Hood, Tales from the Hood was socially... Uh, relevant because you had the scene where the, the late great Rosalind Cash as well has one segment yeah. where she plays a doctor who's trying to do a re-education. It, it is a, an amazing movie. As a matter of fact, it's a movie I would highly suggest you watch over Halloween, man. That that movie mm. was really good this weekend. So, so who won that one, man? Did I sell that one or did Charles get that one? All right, one, one. Charles got one. All right. All right, all right. All right here's the last one. Go ahead, man. All right, so here's the scene. You're on this spaceship, and there's this monster that attacks your face and grabs you. And are you talking about aliens? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, so we bring in some we bring in some non-black films to the table. Go ahead, you can do aliens. I got one for you because uh, I'm okay. gonna get you on this one. I was waiting for somebody to, to, to drop. And go ahead, man. <laughs> go ahead. So, 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 so the monster, so monster grabs you by the head. Attached to his face. Right. Got his, its leg, his tail around your neck and it's uh, choking the guy. Impregnates him, right? And, and they're trying to figure out how to, how to get this thing off of him. And then all of a sudden, it just dies. Uh-huh. And it falls aside. And everybody's like, oh, how you doing, man? He's like, I, I feel all right. I feel all right. I'm good. I'm good. So, hey, let's go eat dinner. Sure, let's go eat dinner. So we all go down to the table, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I don't feel so good. <laughs> you see me and, me and Shane are both looking at you like this, like, uh-huh. And, and the guy convulses and falls on the table, uh, and this thing explodes out of his chest uh, and takes off running. Uh, now, I'm, now, it may not sound that great to you, but I was at a, at a Christian camp at a church. <laughs> I'm sorry. An overnight youth camp. You're supposed to be scaring people, not making them laugh, man. But go ahead. And I'm watching this. uh, uh, People are cursing in the church. What the fuck is that? All right. All right. Hold that thought, man. Because we got about, what, three minutes left? All right. So, 1968. A young couple moved it, that, uh, that a newlyweds moved to New York. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, they move into this apartment building with these really strange neighbors. Suddenly one night, much in the reverse of the immaculate conception story, something comes over young woman and she is impregnated. But instead of having, uh, having a love child, she's having the devil's child. Pray, pray for Rosemary's baby. (laughs) And at the end, when she has the baby, 
And I never forgot this because I remember watching or talking to the Hughes brothers one time in an interview. And there's a great scene at the end of, of Minister Society when you see them loading up the clips and they come and just kill O-Dog and Kane. And they stick the guns out the window and then the scene goes blank for about 30 seconds. And you hear a lot of gunfire. You don't see anything. And then when you come to, you see like chaos. And it always stuck with me when they said the reason they did that is because your imagination is worse than anything yeah. people can show you. Yeah. So if you think Pulp Fiction when uh, uh, John Travolta opens up the briefcase and his face glows, but they never show you what's in the briefcase. In the case of Rosemary's Baby, when they when she looks at the crib, and she goes, look at his eyes. Look at his eyes. And the guy goes, he has his father's eyes. <laughs> Pray for Rosemary's Baby, one of the scariest movies that just freaked me out. When you I never was, saw the baby, is what he never said. Never saw the baby, man. You never saw the baby. And then, and then years later, 1976, they made The Omen, so apparently that was the baby. Was that? That, that was, was not the baby. That was not the baby. That was not the baby, but I'm saying in my mind, that's how I made the connection. <laughs> uh, but yes, Rosemary's Baby. So who won that one, man? Because his made you laugh. I'll, two to one. Thank you. Suck up. <laughs> <laughs> so I would suggest, in addition to uh, Aliens, The Descent, and what was the third one you talked about? Scream 2. And Scream 2. I offered up Rosemary's Baby, Tales from the Hood, and I don't even remember what my first one was. What was the first one? I don't remember the oh, first yeah. one. But you also, I would, add, I would add that, honestly, to this day, the, the scariest movie I've ever seen is The Exorcist. I'm not even trying to oh, front. Yeah. The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. On multiple levels, is scary. If you're a Christian, if you well, actually not if you're a Christian. Well, actually, if you are a yeah. Christian, yes. <laughs> but I'm just saying, if you or if you're a person of faith, if you're a person of science and logic, the, the Exorcist is friggin' mind blowing. And right. when they came back with that extended edition, and she was walking like a centipede Ooh, down the stairs, uh, it just freaked mm, me out, mm, man. Mm, it just freaked mm, me mm. out. So enjoy if you're not going to be out and about. Uh, around the country this weekend, you know, trick-or-treating or going to holiday parties and you staying in. You got some wonderful cinematic film selections. So we're going to take a break right now. And, of course, uh, it's going to be time to review films. This is the time when I kind of talk about these films. Charles looks at me like I'm an alien because he doesn't agree with me, but I'm good with that. <laughs> this is what we do. <laughs> you guys keep it where you got it. You're listening to The Big Show here at 96.3 HD4. Keeping it real with film board in DC right now. Film through the eyes of a true film addict, 
Check out all of our film content at thefilmgordon.com. And this week, there are three new movies opening in theaters. Not true. More than three movies opening in theaters. Three that we're going to cover on the show today. There's always more than three movies a week that are opening. But before we begin, as always, cue the music. And first up this week is a film that I had an opportunity to see at the Middleburg Film Festival several weeks ago. And that film is called Motherless Brooklyn, a a neo-noir crime film written, produced, and directed by Edward Norton. That was based on a novel from 1999 of the same name by Jonathan, Jonathan Lethem. Now, the film, of course, is set in 1957 New York and follows a private investigator with Tourette's syndrome who must solve the murder of his mentor. Norton also stars in the film along with Bruce Willis, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Bobby Cannavale, Cherry Jones, Dallas Austin, Alec Baldwin, and Willem Dafoe. And here is a clip from Motherless Brooklyn. There's something big out there. Do you know what it is? You have the first inkling how power works. Power is knowing that you can do whatever you want and not one person can stop you. And if someone else has a dumb idea that you don't like, well, that's the end of that idea. Is he above the law? That it? I'm just ahead of it. All right. Ed Norton is an actor who, since he burst on the scene in Primal Fear, has is, is an actor who is probably, uh, we talk a lot about the method of acting, right? And you know these people like Pacino and De Niro and of course uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Denzel Washington and others who have adopted the method um, as, as a way of kind of infusing themselves into their character. And Edward Norton infuses himself in character as the mentee uh, when his mentor played by Bruce Willis is murdered and a deal gone wrong, and he leaves him little clues, and he must investigate and find out what's behind the murder of his mentor. Um, Norton, I think the thing that's interesting about this film, much like, and I brought up Primal Fear at the beginning for a reason, because much is in that film where he acted one way only to kind of transition Kaiser Soze style (laughs) into an entirely different direction, He doesn't more or less make that transition in this film, but I think part of the controversy is with his Tourette's, uh, wherein Primal Fear was done kind of as a stunt in order to kind of make a larger point. The Tourette's, in some ways, is is almost played in a humorous sort of a scenario um, in a film that has a lot of kind of overtures to, like, we talked earlier about Chinatown. It's a Chinatown-esque story. Um, for me, I I like the film, but I couldn't emotionally wrap my arms around the film to really embrace it, which is probably why you're not hearing a lot of chatter about Edward Norton or any of the other principals from this film. Perhaps maybe Alec Baldwin, who plays a corrupt developer who is really good in this film. It's a solid film that I think is entertaining, but I don't think it's great. 
if that makes any sense. Um, Mothers Brooklyn, it, it gets the period details right. Norton's performances and a lot of the other performances and in support, including Gugu Mabatha Raw, I thought were very, very good. But overall, I mean, this movie to me just feels like like a C or a C plus. Um, no disrespect to the filmmakers. I just think that there are other movies out there that have more merit that are in theaters right now. And if you have to make choices with your entertainment dollar, like we talked with Wilson earlier, you, <laughs> you just got to make some choices, man. And uh, it's a competition. Your movie didn't win. So a C or C plus for Edward Norton. Nice try. Uh, come back and let's try it again. All right. Up next is the latest film in a franchise that I fell in love with in 1984. And of course, this film is Terminator Dark Fate, uh, a sci-fi action film directed by Tim Miller with a screenplay from David Goya, Justin Rhodes, and Billy Ray, a story from James Cameron, the creator of this franchise, and several others, uh, who also doubles as one of the producers in this film. And this is the sixth installment in the Terminator franchise and a direct sequel to the 1984 original, The Terminator, as well as Terminator 2, Judgment Day, uh, which Cameron described Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, Salvation in 2009, and Genesis uh, as occurring in alternate timelines. Now... This film, of course, brings back many of the people that folks are familiar with, including uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It also brings back, um, you know, Sarah Connor herself, uh, who is Linda Hamilton, Mackenzie Davis, Natalie Reyes, Gabrielle Lunas, and Diego Benita joined the cast. And before we talk about this movie, which I can talk a lot about, let's listen to a clip from Terminator Dark Fate. So you're here to protect her. What are you? Never seen one like you before. Almost human. I am human. Just enhanced. You know, increased speed and strength. Which means I can rip your throat out if you piss me off, so don't. Your turn. My name is Sarah Connor. When I was about her age, a Terminator was sent to kill me to stop the birth of my son, John, leader of the resistance. We changed the future, saved three billion lives. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, this time around in Terminator, uh, you know, if you follow the, this franchise, there's always a chill in the air, whether it's morning, noon, and night, a bubble develops and a butt-naked person falls out. Usually when that butt-naked person falls out, it's a Terminator. All right, just for at home, no spoilers, it's a Terminator. And this time they both fall in Mexico, and in Mexico City, uh, where we have this story that we're really not understanding about uh, two Terminators, one female, one male, have dropped into this country, and chaos, of course, ensues. And then just in the nick of time, as one is about to be obliterated, Sarah Connor herself, Linda Hamilton, shows up 
And then that begins to tie into the story as we discovered that there's a young girl who has been targeted for termination. She has a female Terminator protecting her from a male Terminator who is now a much advanced nine series model. And if you watch the Terminator franchise, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Charles, I think by the time we get to Terminator in like five years from now, they're going to have a 15 model that can transition like a transformer into a car. And like, try, I'm just, I'm just saying, this is no, I don't know what else you do with the Terminator, but this is the nine series that is hunting this woman down. Linda Hamilton, who has lost her son uh, at the beginning of this film. And I probably shouldn't have said that, but oops, too late. <laughs> is now protecting this young lady who reminds her of her son. Um, there is a, a cameo. I don't know if I can bring that back. There's a cameo from an actor that people might know. Um, let's just say, uh, we had this conversation at the, in, 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 outside the theater when the movie was over. I think one is my favorite Terminator. I know Charles Kirkland thinks two is his favorite Terminator, uh, part of the series. One is the best because all these stories branch off of the first one. Um, and for my money, you can go see this one. I think it's entertaining. I think you'll find something there again. C-plus for Terminator. Nothing special. I've seen this story a, a, a trillion other times, right? Stick with the first one. That's the best one in the franchise. Last but not least, let us transition to the movie that I really wanted to, to talk about. And, of course, that film is the biopic of Harriet Tubman, and it is called Harriet uh, the film about the slave-turned-abolitionist Harriet Tubman, directed by Casey Lemon, who wrote, co-wrote the screenplay, or who wrote the screenplay with Gregory Allen Howard. It stars Cynthia Erivo, Leslie Odom Jr., and Janelle Monet in supporting roles. Um, this film, well, never mind. Before I talk about it, because I was about to hit it, uh, this film is pretty interesting. Before we talk about it, let's listen to a clip from Harriet. Rescuing slaves requires skill and careful planning. It requires reading, Harriet. Can you read a sign or a map? Can you read it all? I put my attention on trying to hear God's voice more clearly. Do you know what would happen if you got caught? They would torture you until you pointed them right to this office. You got lucky, Harriet. And there's nothing more you can do. Don't you tell me what I can't do. I made it this far on my own. God was watching, but my feet was my own. Running, bleeding, climbing, nearly drowned. Nothing to eat for days and days, man. I made it. So don't you tell me what I can't do. All right. What can I say about this movie? And Charles is in the room. Uh, I had an opportunity to screen this movie after Charles. Charles, I know, saw it at the Urban World Film Fest. I saw it a couple of weeks later on. And it was a movie that I went into with really high expectations. Um, there had been a lot of chatter about, you know, the first film to feature Harriet Tubman. I know several years ago we had Birth of a Nation, which kind of mined a similar period. So I wanted to see what uh, Casey Lemons would do. Casey is somebody I've known since Eve's By You. Gregory Allen Howard, if we're being authentic. Uh, was a Black Real Award winner that we brought in town 15 years ago, so I have a relationship with him. So I knew the principles behind this film. And I'll just say, I'm disappointed. Um, this film starts off uh, in a way with a screenplay 
that I just think just never rises above like it it it, it being cinematic. It it felt to me like watching this movie was like watching a Sunday night movie of the week or like a movie of the week. Um, Cynthia Erivo is good. And when we talk about acting, you can give me the best actors you have, but if you don't give me, you know, in real estate, they talk about what is real estate, good real estate, location, location, location. What is, what is it in a movie? It is screenplay, screenplay, screenplay. If you give me a bad screenplay, you can give me Marlon Brando in his, in his peak, Denzel Washington, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. It won't matter because if your story isn't good, your movie's not going to be good. And I think that to me is the grand takeaway that I think that there are too many scenes in this movie that just come across. I don't want to call them inauthentic. I want to, I want to call them that. And I don't, and I, and and I don't want to minimize it by saying that it's corny because corny is a bad word too. I, I think that the material that is created by Gregory Allen Howard and directed by Casey Lemons does not, reach up to the ability of Cynthia Erivo, who I think is vastly talented. Uh, and I, and I've, I think if this was a much better movie, I think she would have a stronger claim to a, to a, a best, a best actress kind of a bid if this movie were stronger, but unfortunately it is not. And, and what I will say before the, they come for me, you know, everywhere I've been talking to, you know, women about this movie, women, love this movie. They see it as a as an empowerment piece and I'm not disputing that at all. I'm just saying for me gender aside because I don't really I mean there are some movies that we watch as a as a man it makes you feel some kind of way. Uh this movie does not make me feel some kind of way and it doesn't make me feel bad. Uh it, it doesn't make me feel great. It makes me feel as I said before disappointed because I had really really high hopes for this film. And the film just didn't do it for me. I'm I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that it was bad. I, I'm saying, again, you know, every movie we've given out grades today, we've given out a C, and Harriet gets a C as well. Um, wow. I, I feel almost bad because, as I said, um, I know the people behind this film. And, you know, if they, if they pull me to the side and ask me, I'd be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And it's not just me. It's a whole team of us. We were talking about this movie feverishly out in Los Angeles last week. You know, there's a lot of folks, man, that are just not feeling the Harriet love. So that's what I got for you. And that's what I've been writing and telling people privately for like the last month. And I'm glad I'm able to tell it to you. And that's all we have today. And on behalf of our producer, Sugar Shane Lewis, the man they call the most selfish man in radio who actually gave a pair of socks away last week. I was shocked. It is Charles Pastor Chuck Kirkland. Um, I saw a movie this morning, man. Don't drink the water, Charles. I'll, I'll tell you about that later on. Uh, I am Tim Gordon. Um, I, you know, I've given you some suggestions of movies to watch in theaters this week, movies to watch over your Halloween weekend. And as always, until we see you guys on the other side, we're out.
nothing new to me. You could bring a bullet, bring a sword, bring a morgue, but you can't bring the truth to me. And we open all your expectations. I don't even want your congratulations. I recognize your false confidence and calculated promises all in your conversation. I hate people that feel entitled. Look at me crazy, cause I ain't invite you. Oh, you important, you the moral to the story. You endorsing what the